0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The cross. It is being said by a lot of people today that we live in a post Christian era. Now, the word post Christian is a term that basically means that we live in an era when the influence of Christianity is waning in the world. Uh, It's a debatable statement, uh, at least in America. And it depends really on how you look at the makeup of America as to whether you'll conclude that we truly are in at least the beginning of a post-Christian era. For instance, if you looked at the fact that a higher percentage of Americans go to church today than at any other time in the history of our nation, then it would be debatable that we're in a post-Christian era. Or, if you looked at the fact that at least by what people tell us, that a majority of people, a slight majority of people, will be in church somewhere in America today, uh, leaves the statement that we're in a post-Christian era somewhat debatable. Um, if you listen to the media, whatever form of media you listen to, uh, it has only been in recent years, I would say 10 to 15 years, that all of a sudden the media has been paying specific attention to the evangelical Christian vote. And they had not been doing that before, and that is an indicator of the influence of evangelical Christianity in America. And if you look at it that way, then it would be questionable that we are in a post-Christian era, an era in which Christianity, Christianity's influence is on the decrease. On the other hand, if you look at some other indicators then certainly it would appear that Christianity is on the wane. But I think that is not just in our culture, in our population at large. I think that is true in, among those of us who are Christians as well. We live in a world where there's a whole lot more stuff to do than there was when I was a kid. When I was a kid, uh, the best place to socialize was at the church. I mean, that's just where you went to meet folks. That's where you went to have fun. That's where you went uh, to study the Bible and to know more about the Lord. But it was also just a place to go. And nowadays we have all kinds of different uh, places and activities and opportunities that are crying for our attention to the point where our time is more fragmented right now than it has ever been in our lifetimes and certainly in the history of anybody who's ever lived in this nation. As a result, less of a percentage of our overall time is devoted to uh, Jesus kind of things. And what that basically means is that if you look at the whole of our schedules, our time schedules, there is a diminished Jesus there. Jesus has diminished in terms of his significance if you look at our schedules. I see that a lot as a a pastor. I see uh, people planning to to, uh, go to church, planning to be a part of a church ministry. And and I, I see that penciled in and always penciled in on a calendar. And yet, if most anything else comes up, then what was penciled in for church is erased and it's replaced by something else. Now, sometimes it's something that's needed. I mean, everybody needs a vacation. I even said one time years before, you may remember this, that I encouraged everybody to take at least four weeks vacation every year. And I, I we'd allow, you know, uh, two or three uh, Sundays of people being sick. And I said, could you just come to church 44 Sundays out of a year out of 52 Didn't have anybody come to the altar that day. Jesus has diminished among us Christians. And so even though uh, more people are attending church now in America than at any other time in the history of our nation, even in the time of the founding fathers, did you know that at the time of the founding fathers, the time, the late 1700s, around the time of the revolution, while a majority of people identified themselves as Christian, a strong majority never attended church. It's true. We have many more percentage-wise and number-wise attending church today, than at any other time. But among those of us who are in church, Jesus has a diminished significance. And if that is true, what I'm saying, and I really believe it is, then in looking at it from that vantage point, then truly we are in a post-Christian era. Now, Europe has been in a post-Christian era for a long time. They have long since passed the time when Christianity influenced what they did. And there are a number of reasons for that uh, wane of Christianity in Europe that we don't have time to get into in this particular sermon, but it's an interesting study. But the fact of the matter is we are in a period where Jesus is diminished. I I was reading a recent newspaper article from a newspaper in Lexington, Kentucky. It was interesting to me because in the article, uh, there was featured an interview with a Muslim man. A Muslim man. And the reporter asked him, what was the difference between Islam and Christianity? And the guy said this. He said that there really was no difference, just that one group worshipped God and the other worshipped Allah. Allah. In fact, he pointed out that Muslims consider Jesus to be a prophet and hold him in high, great respect. Therefore, he said, there is no difference, essentially, between Christianity and Islam, the two largest among the most popular religions. But is it true? Is it really true that there's no difference between Christianity and Islam? Is it true that there's no difference between uh, Christians and Muslims? In fact, I'd have to contend that the man could not have been more wrong. That there is a stark contrast between Christianity and not just Islam, but Christianity and every other world religion. You can include the most popular and the most unpopular religions in that group. There's a big difference and the whole difference revolves around who Jesus is and who we believe that Jesus is. In fact... The, the crux of your eternal destiny hinges upon who Jesus is and who you believe that he is. So who is Jesus? Well, some say that Jesus was nothing more than a great teacher. But God? No way. No way. We'll go that he was a good man if he lived and he was certainly a good teacher. He left people spellbound. But God? No. Others say that Jesus really didn't come back from the dead, that that's just a fairy tale that is is impossible to believe. Others say that Jesus is no different from Buddha or Muhammad or all the other great prophets who started the world's most popular religions. What do you believe about Jesus? If I were to ask you or someone were to ask you tomorrow at your job or out at the restaurant or out at school later on in a few days, if somebody were to come up and say, Tell me, I know you're a Christian, what's so great about Jesus? What is it about Jesus that sets him apart from everybody else? Please tell me, what is it that is so great about Jesus? I wonder how many of us would be able to immediately start answering that question, or if we'd have to stop, pause, and think about it for a while. Paul, the Apostle Paul, helps us in this regard And this passage, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, provide for us the clearest and most profound description of the greatness of Jesus. In fact, he answers the question for us, what makes Jesus So great. What is it that is so great about Jesus? And there are six things in particular that I want to highlight here concerning what Paul says about the greatness of Jesus. First thing I want you to note is this, that Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, that is a statement that can be very quickly misunderstood. We can misunderstand it in two ways. We can misunderstand it to believe that Jesus uh, came into existence the day he was born of Mary. That he'd never been in existence prior to then. But the Bible clearly tells us that he existed before he was born in Bethlehem's stable. That he pre-existed that birth. That he has been here for all eternity. The other misconception that we can find in this statement is some people say that when when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, that he was part of creation. But that wasn't what Paul was talking about. Paul was saying that Jesus is over all creation. Jesus was never created. The Bible teaches us that Jesus has always existed. You can go back to the clear statement about this from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John refers to Jesus as the Word. And here's what he says. You know this. He says this, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus, and the Word was with God, Jesus was with God. And John says, and the Word was God. In other words, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He says that this Word was in the beginning. All things were made through Him. Nothing that has been made was made without Him. And then in verse 14 of John 1, He says, "...and this Word, Jesus, became flesh." God became flesh and dwelt among us, and John said, we saw him. We saw his glory. Jesus is the firstborn, that's priority. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's not part of creation. He is over and above and supervisory of all creation second thing paul tells us is not only is jesus the firstborn over all creation verse 15 but in verses 16 and 17 he says jesus is the creator and sustainer of everything that exists verse 16 for in jesus all things were created Things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and get this, in him all things hold together. What Paul is saying is that theologically, everything that exists, everything in the universe or the multiverse is whatever is true about Everything that is, all of it, is held together, Paul says, by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not only the creator of everything, but he sustains it. He holds all of it together. Now, let me tell you, that's deeper than I can swim. I can't swim that. All I can do is tell you what Paul said. You know, preaching, in its simplest definition, is simply saying what the Scripture says in a different way. That's really what preaching is. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the God who created everything and he's the God who holds everything together, verses 16 and 17. The third thing that Paul tells us about Jesus and the reason that he's so great is that Jesus, Paul says, is the head of the church, verse 18. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. You see, ultimately... Pastor should not be running the church. Ultimately, the deacons should not be running the church. Ultimately, committees should not be running the church, although all of those things, all of those people are instrumental in the working of the church. But ultimately, the Lord Jesus is the head of the church. Everything that we do, every decision we make, every ministry we undertake ought to be under the umbrella of, does this honor and glorify The head of the church who is, the head that is, is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here to please Him. We're here to honor Him. We're here not to please our own preferences. In fact, if indeed we are in a post-Christian era, one of the reasons is that the church today is more set... on on having our own preferences satisfied, then we are honoring and glorifying the God who has placed us here. Not only is the head of the church, but number four, the Bible says here, Paul says that from eternity, Jesus has always been supreme. The last part of verse 18, Paul says, Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy or the preeminence, so that in everything we would have legitimate and justifiable reason for placing him absolute first in our lives. One of the reasons why there is a post Christian attitude within the church, not the population, although it's there too, but within the church, is because we have put other things before. Jesus, We have allowed things that have uh, come up in our lives, whether it's a grievance or if it's a success or whatever it is, we've allowed that to come before the Lord Jesus in life. And so, you know, if, if, if we if we had someone to come in and audit our books, two different books, our time schedule and our checkbook. If we had someone to come in and audit our time schedule and our checkbook, what what they would find with with too many of us in church is this, that in our checkbooks there is no evidence whatsoever that Jesus is preeminent. No evidence. You say, well, how can my checkbook? Listen, (laughs) the Lord teaches us, the Bible teaches us, that we are to give a percentage of our income, the top percentage, to the Lord's work through his church. Now, there is debate over can the Old Testament go into the New Testament and whatever, but nobody would disagree with the fact that God has called us to give. And it's not to give so that we can meet budget. It's not to give so that we can pay a certain staff member. It's not to give so that we can brag about what we give and have it printed in the Christian Index, the Georgia Baptist paper. We give because it is an act of worship that is to be cheerful and sacrificial and with expectancy. My question for all of us is, if we looked at your checkbook, and I'm not going to look at your checkbook, this church has never and will never audit you or send you a bill, nothing like that. Back when we started the, our capital campaign, people didn't want to call the uh, commitments we made pledges. They wanted to call them commitments. It's all semantics. But the reason that a lot of people didn't want to call them pledges is because they'd heard of horror stories of churches that had called them pledges and then they would send the church would send bills out, even collection agencies, out to the church membership. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen here. But what should happen is that you should examine your own pocketbook and see if Jesus is preeminent in your pocketbook. And you and I should look at our own daily planner and see if Jesus is preeminent in our daily schedule. Or if he's been relegated not just to a back burner, but to a garage freezer somewhere out there as just a leftover that we may go back to or we may not go back to him. By the time we get to him, he's kind of molded over because we just haven't really paid a whole lot of attention to him. Jesus has always been supreme, number five. Paul tells us in verse 19 that everything God is, Jesus is. Now, I'm sure that immediately somebody's going to retort me and say, wait a minute. God is a father. Jesus wasn't a father, so that statement isn't true. It's true that Jesus is not a father. God is. It's also true that Jesus is a son and God has never been, God the father has never been a son. And yet, the Bible teaches us, as I mentioned in John chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 and verse 14, that Jesus is God. And Paul says here in verse 19, he says, For God was pleased to have his fullness, that is everything that God is, to dwell in Jesus. Jesus is not just the image of the Father. Jesus is not just the Son of the Father. But Paul says everything about God, everything about the fullness of God, God has been pleased to have dwell in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, when, when Matthew is talking about the birth of Jesus, he says in one place, the angel tells, uh, tells, the, uh, tells Joseph, who would be the supposed father of Jesus, he tells Joseph, he says, your, your wife's going to have a child and you will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel is an Old Testament language word for God is with us. So when Jesus came to us, In that manger, what you essentially had was God come to be with us. God put on skin and he dwelt among us. That's what John said in chapter 1, verse 14. The word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Everything that God is, from a divine standpoint, Jesus is. And then number six. Through his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus accomplished what nobody else could. Paul says in verse 20, and through Jesus, God reconciled to himself everything, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, you and I needed that so desperately. Even the best of us. I'm talking about you you pick out the best person you've ever known in your life. And in the nooks and crannies of that person's life, there are scatterings of rottenness. It's in all of us. And that, that, that smithering of rottenness in all of us is called sin. And that sin, the Bible says, results in death. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? You know it. Death. But I'm glad Paul didn't stop there with that verse. He says, for the wages of sin of, is death, but the gift of God is salvation through Christ Jesus. It's eternal life through Jesus, our Lord. And so Jesus came through His crucifixion. He died in our place. Through His resurrection, He conquered our worst dread and fear, which is death. Jesus, through those two things together as one single component, accomplished what no one else could. That's why Jesus is so great. That's what's so great about Jesus. That's what distinguishes Him from Buddha or Muhammad. They didn't... They didn't get raised from the dead. They didn't die on anybody's behalf. But Jesus is the one and only person about whom it was claimed that he is God and that this person who is God died in our place on the cross and that this person who died on the cross in our place also rose from the dead in order to conquer our worst dread. In order to show us that that when we die and they lay our bodies or scatter our ashes or whatever they do with us, that it's not the end, that it's not a period at the end of the sentence. You see, the church at Colossae was confused. There were some people who were telling the Colossians that Jesus wasn't really God. There were other people who were saying that Jesus had never really come to earth in human form, only in kind of a ghost spirit form. There were others who were saying that salvation came from some other way besides Jesus Christ. Jesus plus something else, plus angels, plus other mediators. And Paul here wants to, wants to nip this problem in the bud. You see, they had diminished Jesus from being the God of gods and the King of kings to a God among other gods, a mediator among other mediators. And Paul quickly, even though he didn't organize this church, He took it upon himself to send this message to them saying, look, Jesus is not one among many. Jesus is the one and only. Jesus is not one God among many gods. He's the only God. He's above all else, which is the central message of Colossians. Ladies and gentlemen, whether we believe what the Bible says about Jesus... Does not, we can say I don't believe that, it doesn't change the fact about Jesus. I can believe that this carpet right here is not green. It doesn't change the fact that it is green. And what you and I believe about Jesus impacts everything that is significant in our lives. What do you say when the question is posed to you? What is so great about Jesus? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, show us in your word, by your spirit, And in every way that is possible for you to show us, Lord, show us that you are above all else. And that we must acknowledge your preeminence. And Lord, help us to realize that in, for, for many of us, in some unconscious ways, we have been diminishing your significance in our calendars, in our prayer lives, in our checkbooks. And God, help us to reevaluate those areas of our lives and ensure that not only do we say that you are above all else, but we actually are conducting our lives in a way that evidences that we believe that you are above all else. Lord, I pray for someone here who has never invited you to be their Savior and Lord to come and say, I want Jesus in my life to save me. I pray for someone here who has not been baptized to come and join for baptism. Lord, I pray for someone here whose life needs an adjustment to come and just carry that concern to you at the altar. I pray for someone for whom success has come, triumph has come, great times has come to come and acknowledge you in thanksgiving at the altar for what you've done. Lord, may this be a time when we modify our lives in line with you, align ourselves with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.